0: Wowie! Hi! Overtime is happening now! I'm your host, Meg Hot Potato Lewis, and today we have a fun episode because I'm joined by an incredible co-host, someone who is extremely talented that I would call myself a very big fan of. It's Alice Lee! Hi, Alice! Hi! Thanks hi. for that lovely intro. <laughs> yes, Alice, I became a huge fan of your work because of that amazing slack illustration system you created but in addition to brand illustration systems you also do murals you do editorial illustrations and you're you're really just powerhouse so i'm happy that you're here
1: oh thanks for having me hot potato back at (laughs) you
0: In this week's episode, I realized that being on Instagram is actually bad for the environment. Whoops. BMW launches a derpy logo refresh. And just like your six pack, your own design style is hiding inside of you waiting to be let out. Take your career to the next level by showing your prospective clients just how awesome you are by making your personal website with a personalized domain name. Having a personalized domain name will make you stand out of the crowd and let your audience and clients recognize your brand. So whether you decide on yourname.me or use a well-known alias like uh, bingbong.me... .me domain is uniquely positioned to help you create a captivating online persona that's a direct reflection of you. .me is trusted by almost a million people and businesses worldwide, including including some pretty amazing designers. So don't you think it's time for you to join them? Okay, let's get into the news. So the first news story I want to talk about is so fascinating to me, and it's a huge subject, um, but I... I'm very invigorated by it. So fast company launched an article titled what Instagram looks like after an eco-friendly makeover, which is that headline is such a small part of what this article is about. So Mm -hmm. I, I, and I didn't realize any of this information, maybe I'm just like naive, um, but this has totally changed my perspective is that, okay, so servers are, you know, in climate-controlled warehouses all over the world. And those obviously use so much energy. And I never really thought about that because they're so far away. It's so far removed from the stuff that I'm doing on the internet and on my phone. Um, But technically, data centers like that use about 3% of global energy, which really doesn't seem like that much on paper. Um, But there's a, a, a Person named Tom Jarrett in the UK who works for a studio called Normally. And he set out to do a research project where he tracked his own energy consumption on the internet. There's a, I guess there's a Firefox plugin called Car- Carbonalizer, like Carbonalizer. Wow. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. And so he used this tool to track his own energy consumption through internet use. And he found out that in one week of using the internet, he used as much energy as it would take him to fly from London to Zurich. And I think that information was just very shocking to me. Yeah. And uh, and so then Tom set out to try to figure out how we can curb our internet usage in a, f- in a form of using less energy. So I think a lot of the issue there that he is trying to fix is that the way that especially social media is designed is for us to just keep consuming which we all know this um but it, i've always thought of social media as sort of like you you have to stop using it so much for your mental health but i never yeah. really thought of it from the perspective of using less energy have you like has this mind thought ever crossed your mind no
1: i think these are two such important topics that i've never connected the mental health piece and then the energy piece uh, with, you know, using your phone a lot. And I'm just really curious, like, about my own conception now because a flight from, he said, like, London to Switzerland, yeah. that that's, like, a – that's significant. Flight start, flights take up a lot uh, – use a lot of energy. So I'm just curious, you know, for me, like, how much of that scrolling is contributing to uh, energy usage. But then I think the other interesting thing is whenever I've thought about um, – like curtailing my, my internet usage on my phone. I haven't thought about it in terms of redesigning the apps. I've just thought about it in terms of like quitting cold Turkey, like throwing my phone across the room, just being like, I'm not touching this for the next like day, you know, versus, um, actually changing the behavior but still like keeping the phone
0: yeah it's it's really interesting and i think especially in this use case where he redesigned instagram to use less energy so instagram just allows you to scroll and scroll and scroll and every time it's you know inputting all those images and all of that data it's just yeah. using more data and more energy and so the way that he was able to redesign it kind of get served to you in bite-sized chunks so that it's not constantly loading more information and more information so inherently it's using less data and less energy and yeah I, I i think like because this is a design and creativity focused podcast i think that's an interesting thing for everybody to think about is i know that the companies we work for um l- don't want to don't encourage us to um redesign things to be uh bite sized we they want us to stay in their app sure sure um, i i would hope that the world is at least trending in this direction and i think that brands it's now kind of cool and trendy for brands to um care about the environment so I'm hoping that this is a a trend that emerges of companies maybe even launching different versions of their products um, that help us to use less energy or at least thinking about it a little bit more. Because if I have never thought about it this way, I'm sure other people have too.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess for um, like Spotify, there is the data saver feature where you can like turn off, uh, you know, certain aspects of the app that cause you to use a lot more data, but that's framed more in terms of like saving money so that you don't have to pay an outrageous. <laughs> bill. But maybe there's other, you know, data saving light features for apps in the future. And it also makes me think about, um, you know, Instagram is an example of an app that probably uses a significant amount of data because you're downloading images and media. But what are other apps that probably do that? Like maybe YouTube or if you play a video game yeah. where you know, you're all connected to like one server or like one world. I don't know how this works, but you know what I mean? We're, yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah. yeah I guess um, the so many of the patterns that we're designing for as as designers is to keep people involved and keep people engaged in our content.
1: Yeah. And...
0: Uh, yeah, I'm trying to not spiral out of control and think about it of like, how can I create content that's actually serving a very important purpose so that people aren't ingesting what I'm doing and then using more energy. Sure. <laughs> because yeah. if I think like that, I might just uh, not do anything ever again. <laughs>
1: that's a lot of pressure.
0: <laughs> yeah. But I guess yeah. this is just another another interesting way to be mindful about consumption and what I'm putting out into the world and, and how others might be consuming it.
1: Do you do anything in particular as a consumer to be more mindful about your internet usage?
0: Um, I definitely am pretty hardcore about the uh, screen time thing. And uh, yes, I also always have my phone on do not disturb, which has been amazing for mostly for mental health, health purposes, it's been yeah. so helpful for me. And this year in particular, um, whether or not this is a good thing, I don't. I have such mixed feelings about it, but I've turned my Instagram into more of a business than a personal outlet, mm-hmm. which just means that everything that I post in my feed on my Instagram is now, I'm trying to make it intentional and purposeful. And uh, not necessarily curatorial, what, but what I'm trying to do is just make sure that I'm being intentional with everything that I'm doing. So that way I'm not wasting people's time. But yes, I think uh, turning my, my Instagram into a business uh, outlet for me has been really empowering for me to uh, think of Instagram as more of a business tool than anything, which keeps me off of it. Yeah. Weirdly enough. Okay.
1: Because of boundaries?
0: Yeah, I guess so. Being intentional with how you use the internet, especially with how you're posting on the internet. And if you can be empowered by the fact that what you're doing is serving a value to the people that are seeing it, then it helps us all to be more intentional with what we're posting and what we're consuming, which I absolutely love. That's great from an energy standpoint. So check, we're making some progress. Yeah. For the second news story today, uh, let's talk about this. Okay, so I guess that BMW launched a logo refresh really recently. Mm-hmm. And it's always fun to talk about brand redesigns and logo redesigns because I I generally... Um, I'm always quite neutral on things. I can be like, oh, that looks silly or "Oh, that one made me laugh. I have uh, initial gut reactions to the emotions that I feel when I look at logo redesigns. But I'm not the kind of designer that's like, absolutely not about anything. Um, (laughs) So anytime I see a logo refresh, I like to talk through my feelings about it because I think it's helpful for me to find my uh, opinions in real time and in on a podcast. So, um, so this logo refresh, I guess that they launched it, um, to go with a concept car called the i4, um, and looking into the history of the BMW logo, they've pretty much had the same logo since 1917. They just have applied different effects to it. Like one one time it might be shiny and look realistic. Another time it might be more flat. And so um, this new logo refresh is the same thing. It's the same exact content of the logo. It's just different. They've just applied different styling to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and... My gut reaction when I saw it compared to the old logo is that it just kind of looks derpy because <laughs> there's like nothing going on. It's just like a white stroked circle with like the BMW. Uh, what do you call that? Like a, a circle with two different colors inside, and oh, then the yeah. BMW. And so it kind of looks like whenever I'm at the beginning stage of a logo design. And I'm thinking through uh, my ideas and I'm like, nope, this is something's wrong, but I have to just keep going. Mm. Um, it looks like that, like it looks incomplete, but I can't blame them because it's the same thing that they've always done to where it's the same logo. It's just there's different styling. So it looks just, com- especially compared to the last one, it looks very unfinished.
1: I know what you mean. Um, I do also agree. And I also I think I'm similar to you in that I don't get like super worked up about logo redesigns. I'm usually I have some kind of reaction like, oh, cool. Or uh, <laughs> weird, but OK. <laughs> I'm not yeah. like, oh my god, I'm I'm never going to look at a BMW ever again. This is an insult to my eyes to have to look at this, you know? <laughs> um, or I'm never like, yes, BMW, this logo made the car for me. You know, it's, it's never so extreme for me. Um, So it is fun to kind of talk through it. And I I do agree. I think maybe this is just like part of this style that's rippling through a lot of um, brands right now. Like I saw a side-by-side of um, a lot of iconic fashion brands, um, like Burberry, for example, like redesigned their logo. So before it used to be this like really lovely, fun horse-drawn chariot thing above a a, uh, serif. Um, But now it's like Burberry, just like sans-serif, all caps. And um, I don't know if that's maybe just a sign of the times and having to adapt to being put into more context on screens, smaller sizes, et cetera. Um, But I personally really prefer the older logos. Like I'm looking at um, in the article that you're referencing, I looked at the older logos from even before the most recent iteration where there's, like, BMW and this really, like, fun serif font. And it looks almost hand-drawn. And I love that. Like, that's what Mm -hmm. I'm drawn to. It just feels like it has so much personality. Um, Exactly. And it feels really unique to that brand as opposed to, like, this look could have just been taken and applied to any other car brand in this, you know, general field. So,
0: yeah. You made a really good point about – Brands kind of right now, just stripping all the personality out of things. And that's definitely some something I hear a lot from clients whenever I'm working on, especially brand refreshes. If they're like, oh, we have a great system in place, but it just needs to be refined. They often ask me to just strip everything away and make it fresh in that way of like taking everything unnecessary away. And uh, that breaks my little heart. <laughs> because I love working on design that has um, exciting and personable brand elements that really create a personality for a brand. And yes, I do think that there are a lot of ways that we can create personality with very little. And I think that's the magic of type um, and type design. But in this case, it just looks like compared to the other ones. But My other point that I think is very interesting and I'd love to talk to you about is that as soon as you scroll down and see it on the car, it immediately, I was like, oh, okay, no, I I do. I do actually like this. And I feel like I always have this epiphany when it comes to anything that's print design or like actually 3D in a space that this happens to me every time to where I always feel like the simplest things digitally end up looking amazing in person when they're not on a screen. and. It's so confusing to me how that happens, but it does. And all of, whenever I'm at the grocery store, for example, or like a drugstore and I'm looking at products, I'm always attracted to the products that have the simplest design. But as my my history as a digital designer, I always have to add more and more and more and more elements to things in order for it to look good on screen. But I don't understand why that happens to print design. And I'm sure somebody out there knows the answer to this.
1: It's really interesting when you mentioned that um, you like it a lot more when you see it in context. And I think that's an important part of critiquing identity and logo redesigns is like, there's so much uh, context surrounding it that almost makes it very difficult to uh, truly critique a logo. When you see it just stripped down uh, as it's, you know, singular unit, you really have to understand the different context that it'll be applied to whether it's um I don't know if BMW has like a mobile app or something. So whether it's like on the, on the screen on your phone or on the hood of a car, and those that's like a very broad range of um, environments that you will have to look at it in. So I think that if their goal was to have something that um, can really look good across those different environments, then maybe this is what the most successful solution that they that they had. So maybe that then it is you know effective. So yeah.
0: Yeah. I think that's a very wonderful take on how to critique brand design and especially logo design. And that's a really good point to keep in mind. Yeah.
1: Whatever I'm designing, um, I always feel like when I put it in context, uh, when I put my illustrations in, in a context, like if I'm painting a mural, I will usually work on it digitally on my computer first, but then I'll like comp it up in a photo. And there's always this like, five to 10% boost whenever I like put it in context, like, <laughs> you know, sometimes I'm like, I'm not feeling it. Like there's something kind of off, but let me just see it in context. Then I get excited again because of that boost. So That's true. yeah, I do think that there is something magical about putting the pieces together, whether it's of your space design with your illustration to see the mural or it's the car design, with the hood with the logo to see you know how it's going to actually look on the
0: car. yeah it's kind of like the the old saying of like the camera adds 10 pounds but this is like yeah the ten context-, sparkles. <laughs> <laughs> context adds uh 10 sparkles
1: sparkles yeah <laughs> yeah and then if we can get it to 100 to begin with then it's 110 in context so it's like yes special yeah
0: that's right Now, Alice, your work has such a unique style, even though you span so many different colors and textures and definitely subject matter. And it's so fascinating to me how I can always recognize your work, even though each piece and system you're creating is so different. And I think that's a fun conversation for us to talk about because I also am known for my style. And this is something that I have questioned and uh, reconsidered a lot throughout my career, because, you know, people tell me this a lot, that they can always recognize my work. And as someone who's solving brand problems all the time, that can get very confusing of having a unique style. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. let's talk a little bit about style. Do you, like, zooming out, would you recommend that all designers, illustrators, artists have their own style, yeah. What it?
1: What a great topic. Um, the quick answer to that question is yes, but then the longer answer is <laughs> yes. But you already have that unique style, so it's like helpful to have, of course. But it doesn't matter. That doesn't matter what the answer is because you already have it. It's it's inherent to you, just like your actual voice. You know, um, one one artist that I really admire, Victor Nye. Um, she said in an interview, a teacher once told her. Your, draw, your illustration, your artistic style, it's just as natural to you as your handwriting. So you can try to hide it. You can maybe do other styles. You can work in someone else's voice as much as you want. That's totally cool. But at the end of the day, just by existing and having opinions and a point of view and then putting that to paper, like you have inherently your own style. It's just like your handwriting.
0: So true. I mean, if you gave us the exact same prompt and same color palette and told us to use the exact same content in a piece, they would come out two completely different ways. And I think a lot about that too, because I think my style in particular, even though it has quite been the same throughout my whole career, it can overlap with trends that come and go. And so sometimes people want to talk to me about like, oh, this person is riffing on your style or like they stole your style or something like that. And I can, I could never feel negatively towards that because whenever I look at that work, I look at it and think, wow, my brain would have never made it that way though. Like clearly they have their own style and maybe there are some common elements between my style and theirs, but there's no way that I would have been able to, to make what they make. And there's no way, unless they just copied it, that they'd be able to make what I do because our brains are different.
1: Right. Yeah. And I think that that's what you mentioned at the end. That's that's a different issue, which is like someone straight up copying your work. Yes. Um, ripping your work. But I don't think that that's what you're asking about. You're, we're talking more about just the general visual language that you work in, um, like your visual vocabulary and the way that you um, interpret, interpret things visually. So, Yeah, I I do think that, like, A, we all have inherently, like, by existing, we all have our own unique voice, whether that's in life or artistically. But I also think, B, um, as an artist, as illustrators, designers, it takes work, experience, time put into honing and finessing and harnessing that. You know what I mean? It's like we all have it deep down, but it takes – time and energy to bring that out and really let it shine someone told me recently that we all have a six-pack but like (laughs) some we all have a six-pack like you just can't see mine or other people a lot of (laughs) people because you know we didn't go to the gym and work out that particular part of our you know muscle but um underneath it all we all have a six-pack so (laughs) if you put in the work you can um, you can really bring that
0: out. This year, I've been honing uh, honing in and, and teaching a find your style workshop. And this is you, what you said about the six pack thing is making <laughs> me laugh so hard. I was trying not to laugh over you so that everyone and me included could still hear you. But it made me think that it'd be really fun to go to a find your style workshop that's half finding your style, half finding your six pack, <laughs> <laughs> where it's like you you do like a little a little design exercise and you do some crunches and you just yeah. keep going back and forth. See what see what happens first.
1: <laughs> yeah. Or maybe if you don't want to do crunches you you have to do more design exercises.
0: Yes. Okay, so I'm sure that you get asked this a lot, and I'm going to ask it because I'm sure everybody is wondering, but when it comes to having a style, and you in particular, because you work with a lot of big brands, especially when you're creating illustration systems for them, how do you adapt your style to the brand constraints in general?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think, you know, for a long time, I didn't really uh, overlap my personal style with the style that I was creating for an in-house brand um, because it didn't seem like they wanted that. Like people have, I mean, companies have their own uh, set of constraints that they're trying to solve for their own market that they're trying to target. There's all this data. So my job is really to take all that information as inputs and then output like a, a system that works for that. And sometimes my own style isn't the right solution for that. Which is why I'm always really confused because uh, whenever I've put out work that is for maybe like a larger brand in the past, like Slack or like WordPress, for example, sometimes I'll get um, emails afterwards saying, can you just do what you did for Slack, but for us and just like change the color. And then I'm like, I don't think that would work for you because I created that for them with these specific parameters in place. And I'm sure you have different things you're trying to sell for too, and a different audience. So That doesn't make sense, you know? Um, But I think the Slack project is really unique because that was one of the first times in my career up up until that point in like 2015, 16, I don't remember, um, where the company was really open to letting me put in a lot of my personal style. Like it just so happened that it overlapped really well. And I was really lucky and I'm really grateful to them for letting me do that because then that opened up the door for letting me inject more of that, of my own personality into future client projects.
0: Yeah, I think this this conversation and what you mentioned about solving for problems and um, adapting your style based on those problems that you're solving for is such a fascinating topic to me. And this is whenever I teach find your style workshops and all of that, this is something that I've really had to Finesse of how to to explain this to people. And especially coming from a designer, I think with with illustrators, you're kind of expected to have a style more than designers usually are because designers, um, our job is to solve problems and to Mm -hmm. create design solutions that best solve the problem. And I think there is now, luckily, this wonderful spectrum that you can land on as a creative of if you want to be a problem-solving creative uh, designer, illustrator, artist, or if you want to be strictly an artist with a style, yeah. and for me, yeah. uh, in my career, I started as more of a problem solving designer, and I would have to basically adapt my design style based on the solution that was best for that solving that problem. And because my brain is very unique, I would always end up my style would be peeking through a little bit. Yes, and yes. Uh, I know what I can't do. My skill set is limited. I'm very good at some things, not very good at other things, and so I would be able to create you know, great solutions for these problems from a design thinking standpoint. Um, But my style would always be peeking through. And now as I've gone through my career, now I'm more on the artist side of the spectrum where um, usually companies approach me because they've already figured out a solution for the problem they're trying to solve for. Mm -hmm. And my style happens to fit exactly within that solution that they need. And so of course, within that, which I'm sure you're familiar with, You adapt a little bit. You change things a little bit here and there um, based on the solution that that needs to be solved for the problem. Um, But basically, you're acting as uh, an artist using your style to create that solution, which it's important for every creative to know where on the spectrum they want to fall because I think a lot of times um, people that are on the problem signing side of the spectrum uh, feel Guilty, like, oh, I should have a style. Um, why don't I? Or maybe they're like, no, design isn't art. Design is, exists to solve problems. So, so I see a lot of arguments on both sides, but I think it's a personal thing on w- finding out where you want to be on that artist problem solver spectrum and just embracing that and realizing that that's where you want to be. So that's the kind of work that you need to make.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. And, and my journey has been really similar to yours too, where I started off in house illustration product design so I was definitely in the problem solving design way of thinking and then after I left that job where, where I was working at Dropbox I would freelance and so that independence really allowed me to move more towards finding my own voice and then expressing that through my professional work and being more on the artist side
0: Yeah. So as you evolve, do you, where do what do you think is next? Like, do you think that your style will change?
1: Oh yeah. I think my style will definitely change. I think it's always changing from project to project. Um, yeah, I I think it's probably interesting and and maybe you've experienced something similar where I do think my style changes quite a bit, but it's just because I'm really in it, you know? And so I see all my neat little changes that I'm making and maybe from the outside. You don't really see it, but then over <laughs> yeah. the course of like a year, you might see it, but not from like project
0: to project. That's true. I recently just started using purple for the first time and Ooh, to me, that makes, it makes everything feel like, oh my God, who am I anymore? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, but of course to other people they're probably like it doesn't look like that big of a change but for me it's just like a new color means so much <laughs> yeah totally all right Alice thank you so much for chatting with me today is there anything you'd like to promote or add follow me on Instagram yeah <laughs> where I'm, can find you?
1: I'm at by Alice Lee would love to see you and
0: say hi and I'm sure by now everybody's really curious to know what your work looks like
1: <laughs> oh yeah yeah I post a lot of work on Instagram although I'm trying to post more just like random pictures and stuff of life
0: cool Yeah. yeah all right thanks Alice thank you The hotline for overtime is in full swing. Call one 833 dezignz that's one 833 spelled a little weird, and leave an audio recording of your most embarrassing design question, and you know what? Your recording, plus my answer, might be featured on the podcast. That's 1-833-D-E-Z-I-G-N-Z. No question is too embarrassing, I promise. I'll start. Sometimes I see lettering artists switch their work into some kind of outline mode so they can perfect their letters, and I have no idea what that's called or why they're doing it. And that's it for this week's episode of Overtime. And if you haven't listened to it yet, you know, I have a brand new comedy mindfulness podcast called Sit There and Do Nothing Out in the World. It is a destination for guided meditations, stories, affirmations, and like other weirdly very soothing experiences. It's guaranteed to turn you into a blob and will absolutely make you feel better than before you started listening to it. I do a lot less shouting in that podcast than I do in this one, and mostly I talk in a slow and calm tone like this. Okay, bye. Hear me next week.